Wonderful to see you here this morning. If you have a Bible, hopefully you do. If not, turn one on on your phone or something. Please turn to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 10 together. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This is the story of Jesus meeting Zacchaeus in Jericho. So sign up verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to go and be the home, has gone to be the guest of the sinner. But Zacchaeus looked up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this theme of generosity. We're going to be looking at what it means for us to be a generous people. We want to see the region transformed in God's name. Amen. Now, the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we partner with what God is doing and we give all that we have. And don't just think we're talking about money. We're not. We're talking about time. We're talking about our resources, our homes, everything. But we're to partner with all that God, we're to partner with God by giving all that God has given us. Now, as we start this series on generosity, I just want to share some really good news with you on the theme of generosity. Um, Somebody here has recently received a huge amount of money. Um, and it's going to make a huge difference. They've, received, they've been given a huge inheritance. Um, they weren't expecting it. It came completely out of the blue. And the impact of this inheritance is going to be absolutely massive. Now, just for a moment, turn to the person next to you and just share what do you think that we should do with this inheritance? Just because, you know, we need some ideas. 20 seconds, what would you do this with this huge amount of inheritance? Okay, hopefully you've shared some ideas. Now, some of you are thinking, who on earth is it that has received this huge inheritance? Well, do you want to know? The answer is that it's you. You've received this inheritance through God's grace because of all that Jesus has done for you on the cross and in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul says that you are a co-heir with Christ. And now that means that Jesus receives everything in creation that belongs to him, which is everything. That's our inheritance too. 
We have been given this inheritance. The question is, what do we do with it? Now, for those of you who are thinking, perhaps it's your first time um, at church or it's your first time checking out St. Thomas's or whatever it might be, and you're thinking, oh gosh, it's, I've come to church and the vicar's talking about money. Um, I just want to say, Jesus talks about money more than he talk, almost more than he talks about anything else. And the reason for this, Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, is where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So when God in his word is talking about money or finances or generosity, he's actually talking about the state of our hearts. So if we're the recipients of this inheritance, how does that change the way that we think about generosity? Freely we've received, freely we should give. Now, today we're going to see this in action um, a little bit as we look at this man called Zacchaeus, a man who received an inheritance far greater than he could ever have imagined or dreamed of. So firstly, I want to look at receiving grace. This is verses one to six of Luke chapter 19. So Jesus has entered Jericho and there's a man there called Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector which means that he's got very, very wealthy. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't wealthy via particularly ethical means. He'd made his fortune in a way that would leave a sour taste in your mouth. And it certainly left a sour taste in everybody's mouth around him. In those days of the Roman Empire, areas of Israel... So Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. Israel was carved up and handed over to tax collectors to administrate. And Jericho has been given to Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus would have paid a sum of money to the Roman Empire in order to be the tax collector. And Zacchaeus would then make that money back by taxing the citizens of the place in which he lived. So Zacchaeus would pay a, a bit of money to the Roman Empire and then he would charge the inhabitants of the city, and he'd squeeze as much out of them as possible. Um, so that's what he was doing. He was squeezing as much out of the inhabitants of Jericho as he could. Zacchaeus didn't just stop at getting back what he put in. He needed to make a living and he wanted to make a profit. He probably had a fairly large house to maintain. And so he squeezed the locals for every penny that he could. He was taking a very large cash bonus every single time he taxed somebody. It was a little bit like a wild west. There was no rules. Whatever the tax collectors could grab, they kept as long as they paid the Romans what they were supposed to pay the Romans. The people at the top, the, the, the political leaders, even the religious leaders, they turned a blind eye to all, this, to all of this. As long as there was no rioting and everyone was at peace, they just ignored what was going on. It was, a, it was, a, it was systemic injustice, basically. Now, Zacchaeus looked at this dodgy system and he thought, why not? He wasn't fussed about what he took from others. That was their problem. He wasn't doing anything illegal. He was just playing the game. But his neighbours, everybody else in Jericho, they had other names for him other than just him being a tax collector. To him, he was a sinner, probably the chief sinner, just like all the other tax collectors in Israel. Because Zacchaeus and all the other tax collectors, they sided with Rome against their own people. And for that, they were pretty much shunned. Now, Zacchaeus on one level did all right in this 
um, in this dodgy system. He was absolutely loaded. But on another level, he didn't do very well at all because he just looked around and saw that because of the way that he was behaving, he had no friends. No one to spend time with when work was finished. No one to go for a drink with at the ends of the day. No surprises there. He's basically sold himself out and sold his community out, the whole of Jericho, just for the sake of money. And his love of money had turned him into a bit of a loner. Now, in the midst of all of this, there come these whispers about this traveling rabbi. Word on the street was that just before hitting Jericho, everyone knew that Jesus was on his way to Jericho. Word on the street was that this traveling rabbi called Jesus had just given sight to a blind man. And just before Jesus got to Jericho, he told a rich young bloke, a rich young ruler, to hand out all of his cash. Now, Zacchaeus probably joined all of the dots in this story and thought, hang on, I'm a rich bloke too. Maybe I'm missing something. And perhaps he realised that he needed an intervention and a wake-up call. So off he dashed, where he knew Jesus would be coming, but the problem is he was very short, so he needed to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. And he wanted to catch a glimpse of somebody who was the very opposite of who he was. Jesus wasn't turning his back on his mates in order to make some cash. He was all about helping them and healing them. Jesus wasn't after, you know, Jesus wasn't about chasing after wealth and fancy stuff. Jesus had chosen a simple life. And yet, despite these life choices that Jesus had made, Jesus wasn't a loner at all. He had an entourage of people following him wherever he went. He had his disciples spending time with him all of the time. And Zacchaeus was absolutely gripped by this person who was so different to him. He just had to get a glimpse of him. He was gripped enough by who Jesus was to climb a tree. Now, Jesus is passing by this tree and without hesitation looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus doesn't need to ask Zacchaeus' name. He already knows it. Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus, why are you wealthy? He already knows what Zacchaeus has done. And yet he still calls Zacchaeus by name. And despite knowing everything that he knows about Zacchaeus, he invites himself to go and be a guest at Zacchaeus's house. Now, Jesus could have behaved like everybody else. He could have called him a sinner. He could have called him names. He could have thought, well, you've been ripping all of my people off um, just so that you can get wealthy. But instead, he invites himself to stay with Zacchaeus. Now, this famous rabbi, Jesus, is not just any ordinary rabbi. He's a rabbi who heals. He's a rabbi who has people on the edge of their seats when he teaches and when he tells stories. He's a rabbi who's making claims to divinity. He's claiming to be God himself. And this rabbi could have chosen to stay anywhere in Jericho. He could have gone to the synagogue leader. He could have gone to the other religious leaders. He could have gone to political leaders. And yet where does he choose to go? To the most unpopular person in town. What grace. Most people, as I've said, would have blanked Zacchaeus, sworn at him, cancelled him, and yet Jesus loves him. The other night on Friday evening, um, we were over at 
um, Lee and Rachel's house and Amara, one of our godchildren, couldn't get to sleep and it was pretty late. And so I went up to um, read her some stories to help her go to sleep. And the story that I chose to read her on Friday evening was this one, um, Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I read the story to her and I said to Amara, Amara, how, how do you think you'd feel if you were Zacchaeus? And she said, well, I think I'd be pretty amazed and confused. And I said, why would you be amazed and confused? And she said, well, Zacchaeus was not a very nice man and he'd done so much wrong. And yet Jesus chose to love him anyway. Now imagine the change in the way that Zacchaeus saw himself because of Jesus's actions. Imagine how this act of grace began to change him. If what Amara said on Friday is right, um, and it's just so jolting, isn't it? The way that Jesus treats this man compared to the way that everybody else would have treated him. Imagine the change in the way that he viewed himself and therefore maybe even the change in his behaviour. Now, let me introduce you to somebody a bit like Zacchaeus, another individual who experienced dramatic transformation. This man that I'm going to tell you about had a very dark past. He was deeply involved in the most despicable acts. Um, he was a trafficker of human lives. Um, he was known for his blasphemy. He sought to undermine the faith of any Christian that he encountered. He was known as an atheist. He, um, as I said, he perpetrated abhorrent acts, um, including the exploitation and abuse of women that he trafficked around the world. Now, one day when he was trafficking his human cargo, as he saw it, around the world, um, the ship that he was on encountered a really, really ferocious storm. And him and his colleagues were no strangers to rough seas, but this storm was beyond anything that they had ever faced before. This ship, this ship took a beating and um, it seemed inevitable that they'd meet their ends that day. Amid the chaos, this man, usually engrossed in his illicit trade, fought, um, found himself losing the battle against, this, against nature and against this ferocious storm. And in that moment, a revelation struck him. The God that he derided and ignored and said wasn't real and ridiculed, that God might just be real. And so judgment might be awaiting him if he was to meet his end there and then. And in that moment, he was confronted with the weight of his misdeeds. And in that moment, he had a profound change of heart an acute awareness of the presence of God. And so he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ in the middle of this storm. And from that moment, this once depraved man considered the date of that storm, which was the 10th of March, 1748, as the moment of his spiritual awakening. And he'd go on to write a song about that moment. And it starts like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The man, of course, was John Newton. And his life from that moment took an astonishing turn. Um, he eventually went on to become a clergyman in the Church of England. I'm not sure he'd have got through the selection process these days, but that's another story. Um, he eventually went on to become a clergyman in the Church of England. And he composed some of the most beautiful songs that we sing, including Amazing Grace. His past 
and all of the awful stuff that he, he did, of course, is a stark contrast to the man that he actually was in Jesus Christ. Um, he was a prolific evangelist and minister. He contributed significantly to the abolition of the slave trade and his influence even earned the admiration of William Wilberforce, who revered John Newton as a mentor and a guiding light. Now, during my time in Cambridge, um, 12, 13 years ago, when I was studying there, I had the privilege of playing the piano for a choir. It was a gospel choir. And we um, had a concert one day um, in the place where John Newton served his curacy. And it was a really moving experience to finish the concert in the place where John Newton served his first post as a minister in the Church of England by ending it with a gospel version of Amazing Grace. And just to hear that song reverberating around the place where John Newton was starting to act out the man who he really was, was really moving. Just last year, I had the privilege when I was in London of preaching at the place where John Newton was buried um, after he died. Grace transforms people. Now, we may not be a thief like Zacchaeus or a human trafficker like John Newton, but we've all received amazing grace that has transformed our lives. The question for us, I think, is like Newton or like Zacchaeus, what are we going to do with the grace that has been offered to us? Well, let's look at what Zacchaeus does. Look at verses seven and eight. Zacchaeus begins to reflect the grace that has been offered to him, doesn't he? Zacchaeus receives this grace from Jesus, this invitation that Jesus, in, that Jesus initiates to go and be a guest at Zacchaeus' house. And all the people are beginning to see this and they mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd are absolutely incredulous. They cannot believe that Jesus has gone to spend time with this man. Now, here's the thing about grace. It goes where it is not earned and, do, and is not deserved. That's the whole point of grace. Zacchaeus didn't do anything to earn Jesus's grace. He didn't do anything to earn it. You can't earn grace. And the people absolutely hated this. They did not understand grace. But Zacchaeus in that moment gets it. Zacchaeus knows that he's received grace. And so what does he do? He begins to give stuff away immediately. Verse eight, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Now the crowd are hearing this and Zacchaeus has been robbing from these people his entire working career. Imagine how big the queue is going to be of people that are going to be wanting four times the amount of what Zacchaeus has taken from them. Zacchaeus immediately begins to give generously as a response to the grace that he's experienced. Now, what this shows, I think, is that there's a connection between grace and generosity. From looking at Zacchaeus' life, it looks like when grace arrives, generosity suddenly begins to thrive. He can't help himself but be generous and give away what he has. Tim Keller put it like this, the deeper the experience of free grace the deeper the experience of the free grace of God, the more generous we usually become. Now, isn't that what we see in the life of Zacchaeus? Let me introduce you to somebody else. John Wesley, who transformed much of 
um, much of the spiritual landscape of his time, including um, the city of Newcastle. If you go down to the quayside, there's the John Wesley statue monument down where the quayside seaside um, used to be before the pandemic. Um, John Wesley's ministry had a profound impact on this area. Now, when John Wesley, also a vicar in the Church of England, when he started his journey, um, his journey of trying to reach reach these, this island with the good news of Jesus, he recorded in his journal that his salary was thirty pounds, and his expenses for his ministry amounted to twenty eight, and so he had two pounds to either give or live on. The next year, his income doubled to sixty pounds but he continued to live on the same 28. And so he gave 32 pounds away. The next year, his income was 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28 and gave away 62. The next year, his income grew by another 30 pounds to 120 pounds. And as you might expect, he gave away 92 pounds and continued to live on 28. And he continued this practice for the rest of his life. One year, his income was apparently over £1,400. He continued to live on 28 and gave the rest away. Now, if you find this hard to believe, the authorities found it hard to believe at the time. And when they investigated, they found it to be true. John Wesley's generosity was simply a reflection of the grace that he'd received from Jesus. When Wesley got converted, he wrote in the side of his Bible, my heart was strangely warmed. His heart had been warmed by Jesus. And the reflection of that was that he was generous with his entire life. And that's the thing about generosity and grace. It starts to ripple out everywhere where the recipient of grace goes. Look at verses nine and 10, the ripple effect of grace. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come to this house today, not just to Zacchaeus, but to his whole house. Now, we don't know exactly who was in Zacchaeus' household, but we do know that everybody who was in Zacchaeus' household was impacted. Notice what Jesus said, this man too is a son of Abraham. Now, for those of you that, that know the story of the Old Testament, what was the call on Abraham's life. It was that he would be blessed so that he could, someone said it, be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Jesus, as Zacchaeus has freely received salvation, freely he's going to give away like a true son of Abraham. And Jesus ends this little, this, this little encounter ends by Jesus saying, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, what I really want us to notice about Zacchaeus, I think, is that it's his identity change, it's the change in, in the way that he sees himself that really transforms him. So remember, how was everyone seeing, seeing Zacchaeus at the start of this story? A thief, a sinner, scum of the earth. No one wants to spend time with him. He's known as like, he's probably known as the biggest sinner in the town. What's the identity that Jesus speaks over him? Sonship. 
So he's walking around thinking that he's a sinner. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I'm a, this probably got into him. It probably would with you as well if hundreds and hundreds of people went around telling that and speaking that over you every single day. He's gone from his identity being located as a sinner to now he thinks that he is a son of Abraham because that is the truth that Jesus is speaking over him. Now, in that moment, when Jesus says, this man too is a son of Abraham, the crowd would have been shocked. How could someone like him be a son of Abraham? They'd have said that tax collectors are no longer part of God's people. They're robbing from God's people. And yet here's this rabbi saying that this man too is a son of Abraham. Well, I think it's this change of identity that probably enabled Zacchaeus to go on living out a lifestyle of generosity. And I imagine that he went to give away lots of stuff for the rest of his life. He's behaving like a son of Abraham because that's the reality that is being spoken over him. We live out our identities. Now we see this all, I see this all the time in all kinds of ways. If people have been called names their whole life, not very nice names or, or negative names, usually they begin to live those things out or they begin to believe them and that affects the way that they behave. For those of us, for, the, for those of you that have had positive stuff spoken over your life the whole time, that, that will change the way that you see yourself and you'll probably live out the stuff that's been spoken over you. Church, our identity is that we were once like Zacchaeus. We were once lost. We were once sinners. But now we are children of God. And that should affect the way that we behave and the way that we think about generosity. And so a question for us to think about on the back of this is, is generosity rippling out of us like it did for Zacchaeus? For Zacchaeus, it was an instant transformation. For some of us, it might take a little bit longer for us to get there. But is generosity rippling out of us just like it did for Zacchaeus? Your identity, if you trust and know Jesus, is that you're a child of God. You have a huge inheritance. You've been blessed so that you can be a blessing. Let me just say one thing very clear as we spend three weeks thinking about generosity. What I don't want for, for any of us is for us to think that by being generous, we somehow make God pleased with us. Or by being generous, it somehow makes us a better Christian or a better disciple or any of those. It can earn, us a, it can earn our place in heaven or earn God's favour or love. None of those things are true at all. We don't give out of compulsion, our time, our money, our resources, our hope, whatever it might be. We don't give out of compulsion or out of guilt. That's just a form of works righteousness. Zacchaeus gave because he encountered Jesus and saw that Jesus was beautiful. And his generosity is in an, an overflow of that. We give because Jesus is glorious and Jesus is beautiful and because Jesus is worth it. And primarily, as we'll see as we go through this series, because Jesus gave everything for us. Now, what could we do this week in response to this? If our generosity too should be impacted by grace, just like it was for Zacchaeus, what should we do this week in response Generosity, like any spiritual discipline, needs practice. Um, 
you know, when, when you become a Christian, it sometimes takes, well, it's like going to the gym, isn't it? You need to build the muscle of prayer, of worship, of all, you know, of all of those types of things. Generosity is no different. In fact, Martin Luther said that the last part of somebody to be converted is their wallet. Um, Leonard Ravenhill, a Yorkshire preacher and revivalist, once baptised somebody and this guy had his wad of, wad of cash in his wallet and um, the wallet got baptised with him. And uh, after he came up out of the water, Leonard said, it's not often you see wallets baptised in this day and age. Generosity, like any spiritual discipline, needs practice. So how is this message, how is what we read about Zac- in, with Zacchaeus' life going to change us? Well, just a few practical suggestions. I was reading R.T. Kendall's book on Friday um, for an audience of one. And he said this, and it just really struck me. He wasn't talking about generosity at all, but it just really struck me as I was thinking about generosity. He says this, children children spell love, T-I-M-E. Children spell love, T-I-M-E. So parents... Grandparents, godparents, how could you be generous with your time for your children this week? Um, I think it was Paul I was chatting with over text yesterday, the day before, who was saying that um, time is our greatest commodity. It's the thing that we can give a, a lot of. It's often the thing that we hold back just for ourselves. How can we be generous with our time this week? Children spell love, T-I-M-E. I'm sure that's true for lots of us as well. For those of you with little ones involved in your life, could you maybe turn off the TV for an extra hour every day this week and, and spend, some, spend some quality time with your people and give that time that you could be doing something else just to your children? How about every night as you're winding down for bed, send a text to encourage someone with a reason that you're grateful for them and maybe try and do a different person every single day. Now that might take 25, 30, a minute, two minutes time of your, of your day every single day, but it might make a difference for the person that you're sending that message to. You could try that every day this week. Josh told us about the student weekend away um, just a few moments ago. Perhaps if you've got enough spare cash this week or this month, you could go onto the website and you can buy a pay it forward ticket for the student weekend away so that a student who may not be able to afford to go can actually go for a weekend of teaching and ministry and community and all of those types of things. Perhaps you could consider giving some time to visit someone who's lonely. Do shopping, make a meal for somebody, offer to babysit, do a practical task for somebody who's unwell, volunteer to serve on a team at church. There's so many things that we could do as we respond to God's generosity in our life. You could also ask Jesus how he wants you to be generous with your money this week. I'm not saying that we should all be like John Newton. That was a very specific call, although maybe that's the call for some of you to give away everything that you have and just live on the same amount every, all of the time. But we should all be asking Jesus, what do you want me to do with the money that you've given me? It's all yours anyway. What do you want me to do with it this week? There's so many different ways that we could be generous. Maybe rather than texting somebody, you could handwrite a letter 
to somebody to tell them how much they mean to you or speak some prophetic stuff into their life or encourage them. But let's all try and think of ways that we could give our time, our resources, our encouragement, our skills to make a difference so that generosity begins to ripple out in the people around us. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we were known, if the church in Newcastle, if the church in the UK was known as people that were generous, selflessly generous, so that people would look on and think, what on earth is going on with them? Why do they live so differently to the rest of us? And the answer can only be because of the grace of Jesus. Now, before we respond with the person sat next to you, begin to think about one thing that you can do that's going to reflect generosity this week before we respond and the band come up. One thing that you could do that's going to, where you can begin to practice generosity this week.